In this true crime law and order podcast, the episodes are presented by two separate yet equally ridiculous individuals, one who researches the actual crime and the other who recaps the episode. These are their stories. Well, hello. Hello, hello. Hello, hello. Here we are. I haven't seen you in like 14 hours. I know. It's been a long 14 hours. And... Uh, it's Halloween right now. It is. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. I know this isn't going to be coming out until Thursday, but you know. Yeah, it's Halloween to us, so. It's Halloween to us, and I am one of those psychotic people that as soon as Halloween ends, I am getting ready for the holiday season because I'm I'm just sick and twisted and I love Christmas time. Is your tree already up? Oh, oh no. no, no, no. Because no, we're going to do a real, uh, hello, we're going to go to Lane wow. Farms, get a real tree. Yes, so I am only saying this because normally, you know, listening to because I'm going to listen to this when it comes out, and I'm going to be listening to a, a show we're talking about Halloween during mm-hmm. what I consider the Christmas season. Oh my god! <laughs> and I would argue, okay, so I know you're not like a huge Christmas music person. I know you don't generally like traditional, like Thanksgiving holiday foods. Correct. But what do you feel about like just the holiday season in general, the winter holiday season, I should say? I like the sort of like coziness of the fall and winter holiday feel. Like I I enjoy the like having a blanket, watching a movie or TV. Like part of it, I I love watching TV and and not doing anything. And (laughs) Me too, me too. to, To me, fall and winter, it's like, expected and so i feel like instead of where how i usually feel where i'm like wow i'm watching a lot of tv i'm so pathetic now i'm like well this is what i'm supposed to be doing right now so i'm really just fulfilling the expectations of the holiday season i'm completely with you this is the time when you are expected to be wearing like chunky knit sweaters eating soup out of a big mug Mm, Uh, i love soup Ah, uh, me too. Like What's a your tomato favorite kind soup. of soup? I oh. think in generals, generals, generally speaking, I could always do a tomato soup. That's like mm-hmm. what I always mm-hmm. go for. My favorite is minestrone. Wait, what did the waitress call it that time? Minestrone. <laughs> I still love that story. And I repeated it back to her correctly. And she still said Mindstrom. So she probably heard me say Ministerian and was like, fucking idiot. It's obviously Mindstrom. And she was like, I'm sorry. I know this is Ministerian. I just really, really, really love Minesweeper. And I just got it on my mind. Can't get it out of my mind. Minesweeper. Yeah. That's probably I could have said what Minecraft, but I figured it was more your time. So Minesweeper was probably all the rage. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm going through a tunnel. <laughs> Hello? Are you there? <laughs> nope. That's unfortunate. Oh. <laughs> what's been what's new what's the most exciting thing that's happened to you in the last week this is like when you come back from a really boring summer vacation and you have to write an essay for school yeah it's like what did you do over the summer and it's like i watched tv with my grandma yeah and i got something stuck in my nose did that happen a lot i don't know i feel like kids were always sticking things the only thing i've ever done like that when i was little was i put a penny up my nose in um school one time on a like a dare I, i don't know what the hell i was trying to do i was a very weird child just weird in different ways now but yeah, that's the only thing that I ever did. But didn't kids always like have something stuck up their nose or in their ear or they swallowed something? Come on. Probably. That's a kid thing, right? I mean, I don't I don't really care for children today. Yeah. And uh, I don't really recall caring for them when I was a child. So Well, you know, there's that. Corolla I probably DeVille. wasn't paying much attention. 
<laughs> um, the most exciting thing that happened for us is we've been playing a lot of Mario Party, <laughs> and we've been mm-hmm. unlocking all the the side quest things, which has been a lot of fun. Because and the, uh, I the love Mario Party. Characters are who again? Uh, there's four, which I think is grossly underwhelming. I think there should yeah. be way more. Yeah. There is Dry Bones, who's the only one we don't have because that's a random, of course. Mm. But we've unlocked Diddy Kong, Donkey Kong, and a character called Pom Pom. Those are three of the like least interesting and satisfying Mario characters. I mean, I was excited to have like either Diddy or Donkey Kong. I don't think we need both. No. And I would be happier to have Birdo than one of yes. them. Yes. To be honest. I don't know why she's just like selling me stickers on the side, like some kind of drug dealer in the Mario Party <laughs> world. Freaking unbelievable. But the Pom Pom character, Dry Bones, I, I'm very looking forward to because that's one of my favorites. Is even a Mario character? I, okay, I've never seen Pom Pom in another game to my recollection. I really don't know why this couldn't have been Wendy, but I really like the character oh. she's like a little koopa looking character yeah. she has a a ninja star as her weapon that has a bow on it and she's red and she's huh. cute but i, I don't would have remember assumed that was wendy yeah when i saw the little silhouette davy assumed wendy and i was like maybe bird i don't know anyway so that's the biggest thing that's happened to me in my life is we're unlocking characters <laughs> in, in um, mario party in mario party oh i've been listening to hey riddle riddle a lot Ugh. so I'm funny loving i'm i gotta say and the riddles are so far not like the most challenging but some of them get you thinking so i don't have to like stop and rewind every five seconds like when i listen to any other (laughs) podcast when i'm working i feel like i wonder i really wonder if they edit out some of the silence and thinking because i feel like they like get to them so fast sometimes i know they're very they're very quick in general i think yeah they're all improv based right they're all improv comics so i I would imagine they're pretty quick i mean podcasting is like probably improv comics dream because you can literally cut out every moment of silence (laughs) yes hang on my dogs are barking i hurt your feet hurt my dog shut up go away (laughs) goodbye okay where were we uh, you were telling me to shut up and go home and and goodbye. So I was just about to unhook everything. Should I? Should I stay? No. Oh, please, okay. go, please leave. All right. Well, I'll just I'll fun. just do this episode myself. What about you? You haven't told me anything about your week. Do you have anything exciting um, going on? Well, mm-hmm. something exciting happened last night. Uh, yeah, we watched The Witches, the new 2020 version. What What did you think of that? I really liked it. Uh, I got home and then I looked it up and I saw that it didn't get great, great ratings. But no. I think that. Compared to the old one, it stayed very true to the source material, and it like uh, deviated like just enough. And I thought Anne Hathaway was great. I thought she was really great, to be honest. Yeah. Um, and the rest of them were fine. Octavia Spencer was very good, too. She was great. I feel like they kept true to the sort of ridiculous, campy nature of it. And so, yeah. it, like, I don't think it's meant to be a good movie i think it's meant to be a ridiculous movie and in that they succeeded anyway other than the witches i think the most exciting thing is i got a humidifier oh that's kind (laughs) of exciting i feel really geriatric saying this but i hold on i'm popping a werther's original into my mouth (laughs) honestly i'm let me uh let me just put this cardigan on i I'm, I get so dry in the winter months and like my eyes hurt and my nose bleeds and my skin turns into like lizard skin. <laughs> and uh, I got a humidifier and I also just recently started listening to rain sounds to help me fall asleep and stay asleep. And so between that and the humidifier, I sort of feel like I'm sleeping in a rainforest and it's actually <laughs> very soothing. Okay. Wow. Okay. Three things. <laughs> wow. 
How um, free? I know, right? One, are you sure you're not just sleeping in the Rainforest Cafe? <laughs> what is the Rainforest Cafe? <laughs> Have you never been to the Rainforest? Maybe it's an East Coast thing. It's like a very themed restaurant. Chain? Yeah, it's a no, themed restaurant that. chain that you go oh, to wait. and there's like fake rainforest sounds and you're like around trees. and. Okay, I think I've been to that. There was one like family vacation where my family went to of all places and i'm sorry if you're i will edit that out (laughs) i'll start over so there was one family vacation where my family went to and we went to a restaurant that definitely was like there was two cans and shit oh that's it that's 100 percent it yep yep okay okay so were you sleep are you sleeping in the rainforest cafe now yes okay that's what i thought order the uh the chicken nuggets shaped like dinosaurs the... And question number two. <laughs> question number two is, I think we're living parallel lives because I, in the wintertime, that happens to me too. And I don't have a yeah. de- uh, humidifier, but maybe you should tell me if it's working. Because my skin, literally, I feel like I'm turning into a reptile. I definitely really like it. I feel like I've noticed that my sinuses don't hurt as much in the few days that I've been using it, which I think is probably just three now but also my Mm. eyes don't feel as dry Hmm. which is also really nice for like waking up because it doesn't feel like you're tired yeah number three is i wanted to ask because we were just thinking about getting some sort of white noise type device yes do you use something that creates the sound or you just like listening to headphones to like a track oh no i just um drip water all night long oh okay i i make it oh that makes a lot more sense that makes (laughs) so much more sense do i use some sort of device yes (laughs) I don't no. make the rain sounds. I mean, are you just like playing it's a, a rain track stick. on your phone? I just wake up every 30 seconds and turn over one of those rain sticks. You have one of those uh, machines that like perpetual motion machines you've attached a rain stick to that it just continues to cycle yes, through. Yes, it's one of those. It's one of those birds, but it's got like seeds in it so that it makes sort of rain, rain like sounds. Yeah, yeah. I'm drawing out a cactus right out back right now to uh, to make my own rain stick. So thank you for that. What I meant. Do you, ma- <laughs> do you make them out of dried cactus? Yeah, I think that they just dry out a cactus and push all the pins inside. I don't think that's true. I thought that's what it was, a rain stick. I, I thought it was wood. a piece of a cactus. I think it's wood. That, is it? I think it's wood, and I think it's Seeds full of, like, beads. Oh, well, you know, bees? <laughs> and they're full of bees. Bees! Oh, my gosh. Okay, what I meant, which I thought I was clear, was are you listening to some sort of track on, like, your phone, and you have headphones in, that's just like four hours of rain and then you fall asleep or do you have a noise making like a white noise machine of some sort did you, uh, you're right they are made with cactus yeah i know i'm right okay <laughs> you better not edit that out because i will if you edit that out every episode we do from now on i'm gonna um add in that i was right about the, the rain stick Okay. Um, I use a, I don't wear headphones because I'm a side sleeper. And so the headphone would bother my ear. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I just hook it up to a speaker and I play an app on my phone called Noizio, N-O-I-Z-O. And I, it's not incredible, but you can kind of like uh, make your own mixes. So you can say like, I want 30% like thunderstorm, 70% rain, 20% owls hooting. Oh, owls hooting. Yeah, I do have some owls, I think. Yeah, you but got they're it. But pretty, they're pretty faint. I like that. Okay, that's exactly why I asked. Yeah, and I think the app was like $3, way cheaper than a noise machine. And the reason yeah. I wanted, I haven't gotten a noise machine, because I do think it would be a little more convenient, is 
most of them are like, here is the rain sound that you get. And I, I'm very picky about my rain sounds. And so I wanted (laughs) one that I could customize a bit. Aren't we all a little picky about our rain sounds? I mean, we should be. Because some of them just sound like static, like when yeah. you play it. And some of them, you, you, it's like, I want to be lulled to sleep by falling water. I don't want to have to pee all night. Correct. And I will say this app, the so it's called Noisio, and this is not an advertisement for them. It <laughs> When I'm like waking up in the morning, they're very often I'm like, is it raining? And then I remember I have a rain sound on. But it's still kind of lovely to wake up to the sound of rain. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's see. Let's see if we try it out. I'll let you know if we try it out and if I hate it. <laughs> and if you get a humidifier, and let me know if you feel like you're sleeping in the rainforest. Cafe. Uh, that's a great idea. Great. Great. Speaking of the rainforest cafe. Welcome to... Rip from the headlines. That's right. We're just <laughs> going to alternate every few words. And that's why we're starting with... This episode. <laughs> See, Did I mess is, up? I don't know. I just wanted to put you in a, a place where you were on the spot to say something. I didn't know. Okay. <laughs> Great. I I definitely did things a little bit differently with my notes this time. I sort of tried to, in the past, I've kind of like taken a few notes and hit pause and like taken a few notes and hit pause. And this time I tried to more like, what, you know how they go from sort of like setting to setting and they'll be like, we're at this bar, right. we're at the police station. I sort of tried to summarize at the end of each of those moments. Oh. So it could be could be kind of different. I don't know. That's, we'll see. That's kind of how I do it. Okay. So this is season one, episode 10. It is called Prisoner of Love. And the minute that the episode started, I was like, God, fucking here we go again. It's starting with a pair of like beat cops in a cruiser. And I was so disappointed because I feel like they have got to find a new way to start these episodes. But it was actually a diversion for a minute. It was. And the cop car drives past some street sweepers on like a street in one of those. That's not a Zamboni, right? A Zamboni is the one that drives on ice. Yeah, Zamboni is on ice. And it's so it's it's literally just a street sweeper. Yeah, I think so. Okay. And they're talking about their like one of them is talking about their relationship. And the other guy says, like, we'll just tell her you love her. That'll shut her up. So apparently they're, you know, having really great conversations about their wonderful relationships. Yeah, that's a great way to that's like this is the opening scene to Love Actually. But they just (laughs) they they just cutting room floor. And it's actually the movie isn't called Love Actually. It's just called Shut Her Up. Shut Her Up. (laughs) Yeah. But after that street sweeper diversion, it's back to the cops in the beat car, beat cops in the cop car. Beat cop, bop, beep, bop, bop, cop. Beep, bop, bop. <laughs> Did you have a Bebop Burgers in New Jersey? Or was that a chain no. or was that a, a Santa Barbara thing? Uh, it was kind of like sounds... a 1950s diner. Oh, no. We had like a no. Johnny Rockets. Maybe kind of similar. Yeah. Like a like 1950s burgers and milkshakes kind of thing. Yeah, like neon signs and like that art that sort of style of artwork and you know bebop bebop burger also had a a really a big fake wave that you could like stand on a surfboard in and be like look at me surfing Ooh, i know right that's very california feeling right i guess so that sounds because there's vacation-y. no surfers anywhere else besides california i mean i wouldn't say that people go to new jersey to surf although i'm, does, I'm sure you does can. new jersey touch the ocean yeah the jersey shore oh i well i didn't know that could be a lake Oh, come on. Anyway, (laughs) so we're back to the beat cops. They're driving. And 
again, like Law and Order's favorite thing to do, they see two people running, so they just start chasing them. Mm-hmm. And I, I still really want to know, like, is literally running in the presence of a police officer, like, justifiable cause? I mean, I guess the idea is that they are seeing the police officer and in response and to running. that running, so that makes it suspicious by proxy. Yeah. What if you're just about to start running? Right. You're what an, if you're I'm going an for athlete. my nightly jog and I'm like, you know, the music's just kicked in and I want to start running? Yeah, you were running down the block and you're like, um, s- setting myself a sight mark. Uh, okay, when I get to those cops, that's you know about a mile. I'm going to start running. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you know you get assault. You get chased. Yeah. Hello. So they they. <laughs> We learn later that the two people were in leather who were running away, and the cops, like, run and chase after them and end up in this kind of warehouse, and the room in the warehouse that they're in is this room full of, like, mannequins in fetish gear, Mm -hmm. and all I could think about was (laughs) the episode Mm -hmm. of Charmed, (laughs) where... There's the photographer, and uh, I forget what his act- like the character's name is, but he- the premise is he's this photographer, and he takes like young women to take their photographs, and then he steals their youth. Do you remember that episode? Oh, I couldn't remember it at all, but when you just said that last part, that sounds very familiar. So the 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 photographer in that episode, his name is Stefan. And so after he like lure the demon lures this woman back to like take her photographs, he like ties her to this table. And of course, there's like candles and all this stuff around. And the in every scene, she's like, Stefan, please like let me go. And then from like the shadows with really bad special effects of his eyes glowing, he goes, it's Javna. <laughs> and then he steals her youth. <laughs> Anyway, that's the identical scene in this moment. It's just it's just meant to look sort of like seedy and like maybe it looks really cheap too. It's very cheap. Really yeah, cheap. It, it looks like when you go to like a really really small boutique costume shop or something. Yes. You know yes. where they the only mannequins they have are like mismatched that they got from like dumpsters. And they put, like, the wig from, like, $5 wig from CVS on the mannequin. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's very strange and seedy. It, have you ever seen the movie Mannequin, the old movie from the 80s? With Kim Cattrall? Yes. No, <laughs> oh, I Oh, wow. I'm surprised you knew it was Kim Cattrall, but you hadn't seen it. Well, I guess Sex in the City, right? Yeah. Uh, oh, what if... Cause, well, then I guess it wouldn't matter. But I was going to say, what if this was, like, the movie Mannequin? And one of these, like, and one really... of came to life? So... As we're kind of like being toured around this room of mannequins in leather gear, we spot like the cop goes, hey, this one's not a mannequin or something like that. This one's real. This one's real. Yeah. And it's a dead guy who's all tied up. And then we get the title sequence. And uh, about two to three hours later, the show (laughs) resumes. And Grievy and Logan are at the warehouse and, you know, they're doing their kind of banter back and forth. And I will say this episode contains a lot of like kink shaming. Yes. Tons. And granted, you know, they, they've, they're really like tying up like the murder and the like sadomasochism all together. And so they sort of do a, a pretty aggressive job of bashing uh, BDSM stuff while they're prosecuting this murder. Yeah. But there's this really weird moment where they're looking at one of the mannequins who is kind of in this weird, like, porny version of, like, a Catwoman pose. And Logan's like, 
I take this one out for coffee. Oh, Have you yeah. ever once looked at a mannequin and thought, oh, that's so hot? Never in my life. Never. Who does that? The guy in mannequin. <laughs> Uh, and they're like, oh, this guy. Yes, that's true. You're right. The guy in mannequin. <laughs> so they say something about how, you know, this guy dresses up the mannequins all kinky and, you know, who knows what he's into. It's so and weird. It's like, gro- like really out of touch grownups who've never seen anything kinky besides like a, um, a little flash of ankle. Yeah. Or like, a <laughs> the sex dice at CVS. Yes. <laughs> you know, oh and they, this is what they think. This is how they talk about it. Yes. It's a very, like, moralistic read on all of this. Yeah. So they find out that the lease for the building is under the name of Victor Moore. And they also see that there was, like, a camera that was taking photographs while he died. And I I assume it must be a Polaroid because this was before, like, digital cameras. Yeah. I mean, that was really... They must have went to a one-hour photo. Yeah. Uh, so then they, so they find out that the place is leased to Victor Moore. And so they head to his apartment, although in the title sequence, they call it a loft because, you know, an artist doesn't live in an apartment. They live in a loft. That's right. That's the artsy way. (laughs) That's right. And, uh, the wife says clearly she's been away. Uh, maybe it's she, she has been away for a few months because she's been traveling. Yes. I think that's what it is. Yes. And they're just kind of generally questioning her, and Greedy finds a bowl full of matchbooks and is like, number one, who keeps a bowl of matchbooks that large? It's literally like a giant punch bowl. Yeah, it's like a fishbowl of matchbooks. And I know this is the 90s, and I get like, oh, he collects the mat. How many places have matchbooks? That now? many? No. Zero. But like, a, even then, a whole punch bowl full of matchbooks, where the hell are you going? Honestly. And uh, honestly, most matchbooks, don't they come from like bars and hotels? Yes. Maybe she should be looking at the matchbooks a little more closely. Maybe. <laughs> because he's reading out the names and it's like, oh, Joie de Vivre and Pain au Chocolat and all these like fa- <laughs> <laughs> fancy restaurants. And then he's like, the Iron Bar. And she like looks at him furtively and, and we're meant to believe that she's shocked to see that there could be a matchbook from the Iron Bar. And then we cut to Grievy and Logan at the Iron Bar, uh, which sort of looks like a kind of fetishy bar type thing. And they're talking to the bartender to try to figure out if Victor had been there with anybody the night before. And they think they escalate very quickly to like literally just smashing glasses to get the bartender to talk, which I'm pretty sure not part of the police code of conduct to just destroy property. For like no reason, completely unprovoked. He he was talking to them. It was like he was like actually answering their questions and then they just started smashing things anyway. He was not being difficult. Yeah. And he just kind of, no, he just, I think he didn't, he was being um, sort of discreet. Like, you know, like, oh, I don't, I see a lot of people in here, basically. Yeah. So he was, like, kind of beating around the bush. But he wasn't, like, uh, get out of the bar. Or, like, it was, like, literally, they asked him one thing. Yes. He and was Grievy went full Kristen Wig and Bridesmaids, where she's, like, smashing the, the chocolate fountain and the big cookie. <laughs> it's like in Witches last night when Anne Hathaway's trashing oh, the hotel room. <laughs> Anne Hathaway, the minute she came within an inch or, like, or, sorry, when, if she came within, like, a foot of furniture, she was just like, gotta destroy this, gotta, gotta throw go. it across the room and smash it. <laughs> she was really impressed with, her, with herself. She was. I will say the special effects on her mouth were pretty cool. I agree. I think they could have been really, really corny, and they they weren't at all. It was yeah, it wasn't bad. And I think you know, 
here's my one my one note for Anne Hathaway. Mm. <laughs> my note for the professional actor Anne Hathaway, mm. who I'm pretty sure has won like Academy Awards and stuff, right? Yes. So she should definitely be taking notes from me. 100%. That the accent was really the problem. Like oh. I think if she had just done a like standard American accent, I actually think the movie would have been much, much better. Hmm. It was clear that it was meant to be this campy, ridiculous, unidentifiable accent. Right. But it really, it wasn't like Moira Rose where it was like connected to her personality. It just came across as though Anne Hathaway was trying to do some random accent and couldn't figure out what she was doing. Hmm. That's okay. how I felt. Anyway. I liked it. I liked the accent, but I could see it. It was, it, it was, was distracting. Was it distracting, yes. you would say? But also, the movie became much better once the young boy was an animated mouse because he was the worst actor I've ever seen. Oh, in my he was life. A, he was a pretty poor actor. I agree. Oh, God. sorry, the sorry, kid. He was like, "What are you talking about?" And like, put both of his hands up in the air. <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. He's like, "But grandma." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the bartender says that Victor was there that night with a weird blonde who he describes as a looking like Marilyn Monroe but back from the dead who's six foot two with green stripes in her hair. And my first thought was, is it a drag queen? Right. I actually thought it was going to be a drag queen. But no, we cut to... Okay, so here's the other thing. This mo- this episode, unlike other ones where we're in the settings for kind of decent periods of time, this one had so many like jump cuts around to different settings. Yeah. So it's going to be like, cut to this, cut to that. Whiplash. So cut to, they're in a fetish shop, and they are talking to Kate McKinnon from Saturday Night Live <laughs> in a Cindy Lauper reject wig. <laughs> Essentially. It's very David Bowie from Labyrinth Hair. Ew. Oh, yeah. Good, good, good call. Because it's like a, a spherical, you know those chickens that have like the big puff of feathers oh. right on the top front of their head? Yes. Yes, It's I like do. that. But she also had a mullet, right? Like it was a puff it front was. with a mullet. Have you seen uh, The Wedding Singer? I, I... I adamantly refuse to watch anything with adam sandler because i think he is an abomination to the world oh. and i oh. stand by that oh okay well then there's that <laughs> so no but i have seen scenes of it there's a character in the wedding singer that has that hair exactly it's his ex okay. his ex-wife ex-girlfriend at the beginning so kate mckinnon it's not actually Kate McKinnon, but she looks a lot like her. She says that he wasn't looking for me anyway. He was looking for Brian, who used to belong to me. So then we cut to them talking to this Brian, who is this waiter at a restaurant, and he's hot. But this is the only moment we see of him, so it's kind of a, a waste. So he says that Victor tried to pick him up that night, and you know he saw Brian's leather jacket, and he liked him, and he wanted to take pictures— uh, but Brian wasn't into it. No, he was not. He was not feeling it. No. And that scene was not necessary. Like that no. whole scene was n- irrelevant to the plot. So then we cut to the medical examiner and the medical examiner saying that Victor died of asphyxiation during sexual arousal and says he played some dangerous sports in his day and talks about how Victor had like burn marks and some fractures in his bones and all of that sort of stuff. Um, again, sort of emphasizing the like the dangerous nature of BDSM. Mm. So then we cut to the station, and Cragen is saying that he wants this case closed because I guess Victor Moore was sort of a, a well-known photographer and kind of a unknown figure. So the case is getting some press and some attention, and you know they hate that, so they want to get the case closed as fast as possible. So 
Grievy is saying, you know, like everything kind of looks like suicide and Craig, it's like, well, great, then close it. Like, just make it suicide. Fine. We'll be done. <laughs> is that how it works? I'm pretty sure it's not how it's supposed to work. Hmm. So uh, Craigan is saying, just close the case, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and Grievy is kind of like, well, but there was a Polaroid there that with somebody else's fingerprint on it. So he doesn't feel comfortable just closing the case because it looks a little weird and suspicious. But he does ask Craigan to be taken off of the case because, quote, it's too weird for me. And <sighs> he says that the people who live this kind of life will die soon anyway. And then he uh, really politely calls them freaks and says that he's a Catholic who believes in sin and refers to these people as sinners. Cragen says, basically shames Grievy and is like, you've been on the force for 20 some odd years and, and now I have to tell you that it's not about the people, it's about the crime. Request denied. So he doesn't let Grievy off the case and the kind of grossness of that comment goes unremarked other than that though we do see it pop up in a few other places throughout the episode yeah it's like on one hand we watched that and <laughs> i was watching it with davy and he was like um i'm pretty sure he probably should get taken off the case right <laughs> you know Honestly. like a like on one hand a you don't get to pick and choose which victims of crimes that you're going to you know put all your energy into support. but yeah let's say you do have some sort of bias or some sort of opinion and you make it known to your commander in chief or whatever uh right. yeah i would argue that you are not the best person to be on this case you don't just right. i would suck it I up would, and change your change your opinion real quick right i would take you off the case and i would suspend you yes I'd be like well fuck you you can't do your job correctly yeah desk take duty some time off anyway yeah so then we cut back to a scene with victor's wife so victor again is the the person who's dead or been murdered and they are asking his wife if he ever like came home hurt and she says things changed in the last year he was mugged last august and last april and last november i mean come on which you know so whatever like you know apparently they're saying he had to make up excuses of why he came home so like beaten up from his like bdsm side life that his wife apparently doesn't know about or isn't involved in or whatever yeah they're definitely like making this woman the like clueless oh yes i don't don't see anything yeah none of my business and there's a moment in the police station where victor's like grown-up adult daughter is there talking to them and she's like this wasn't a suicide and she says yes my dad was bisexual and everyone knows that but he would never commit suicide and so like here's the pro you forgot to mention (laughs) Oh, what? Oh, that, that, she, that she's actually Blossom? Oh, that she borrowed a hat from the set of Blossom? I was ex- I was just going to say, <laughs> you forgot to mention the guest the guest spot from TV's Blossom. My, my umbilic, yeah. Or maybe it's Six. I don't know. It was more Blossom. Oh. It was like more Blossom. God, I forgot the neighbor's name was Six. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I just want to say this whole episode really plays into a lot of stereotypes of like biphobia where they just are, they really conflate promiscuity and adultery and sadomasochism and bisexuality all together in this really problematic and immoral way that sort of paints bisexual people as like li- like promiscuous liars. So it's really terrible. Yeah. But then Grievy is kind of like going th- through his notes and he's like, 
oh, he was Catholic. Oh, he was philanthropic. Oh, he like took care of his mom and dad. And he's, it's this moment where he's sort of realizing like, oh, maybe he's not this awful sinner, terrible person that I thought. Yeah, it's like this moment of that's supposed to be like, oh, can't judge a book by its cover. But it's actually more like, oh, so he's a deviant, but he's also a good a good person like right it exactly this moment doesn't do anything to sort of like correct Greedy's cor- exactly it just shows yeah. that in addition to being all the things that he doesn't like about him he did good things too you know what i mean which is like yeah right uh, and he says when he talks about these things he says like that's the only conscience he had like taking care of his mom and dad and giving to philanthropy or whatever right so they find out that one of his photographs had sold the day before or a couple days ago. And so they go to the address of the person who had bought the photograph and they're, and he's sort of taking them on a tour of his art and saying like, this was, you know, and now it's worth X amount of dollars. And so it's basically like, I'm a, you know, a, a person who knows art and knows art curation. And so, you know, I really wanted to buy Victor's art and, you know, da, 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 da. And they're like, well, he's dead now. So it's like, you know, it's probably going to appreciate in value now. Yeah. Then we cut to an art gallery where Grievy and Logan are talking to some random, you know, curator of art shows. And he doesn't have a very positive view of Victor and says that Victor was either a pornographer who got lucky or someone who knew what the market wanted. And he says that he also had a talent for getting grants from the city. We cut to some random city office where they're apparently interviewing this woman about the grants that Victor had received from the city for his art shows. And she says she wouldn't have even wanted to approve all of these grants. But Mr. Rothman, the commissioner, apparently really liked Victor's work. And they say, well, how well did he know him? And she goes, professionally or personally? So we get the implication that they know each other personally. And then we cut to another art gallery, and the curator there says that he would have never given Victor any of the shows that he's had without the grants he had gotten from the city, as well as sort of this benefactor who had also given him a bunch of money for the shows or or paid for these shows. And that is somebody named Elizabeth Hendrick. And they're like Elizabeth Hendrick of the Hendricks, which I'm assuming is, you know, they're like a rich family or something. It's the gin people. Oh, do you think that's what it is? I don't know. As soon as I heard it, I was like, ooh, I wonder if this is like... The Jin family? Imagine. I guess they can't oh. really do that. That would be like By the way, really ridiculous. <laughs> and there's no association with Jimi Hendrix either. No. Bummer. No Jin, <laughs> no Jimmy. No Jin, no Jimmy. So they interview her, and it is the mom from Six Feet Under that we were just talking about, like, last episode or the one before. Yeah, we were just talking about Frances Conroy, and here she is, totally, totally random in the episode. And unrecognizable. I actually did not recognize her, and I was watching the episode with Miles, and he goes, oh, it's Patricia Conroy. And I it, that's when it clicked for me. <laughs> I, I wouldn't, she looks... You know, I I think I've only seen her really in like the six feet under type of roles where her hair is like a little bit sort of like unkempt and she's like a little bit disconnected from reality. That's like the kind of character I associate with her. And, you know, in this, her hair was like pulled back into like the a really, really business bun. 
And she was so like present and sharp and kind of bossy in this episode. And so I would never have connected it if Miles didn't watch her or yeah. didn't point it out. I, I like sort of recognized her as looking familiar when I first saw her, but it was her voice that gave it away from me when she was speaking. I was like, oh my God, yeah. that is Frances Conroy. That's got to be her. And, and then so random that we were talking about her. I know. So they find out eventually from the Kate McKinnon leather shop <laughs> character that uh, Elizabeth Hendrick is also a customer of the leather shop. So she's sort of involved in the BDSM scene with Victor somehow. And while they're interviewing uh, Mr. Rothman, who is the commissioner, he tells that they tell him that he is a suspect in Victor's disappearance or sorry, not disappearance, murder. And he's like, I have a wife and kids. I don't want this to go public. And he says that he was with Elizabeth that night. Elizabeth, however, maintains that she was alone that night. And they're like, well, Rothman says you were together. And she says, I went to bed early that night alone. So she's not (laughs) participating and giving them a very different story from Rothman. So we're back in the police station. Cragen gets a phone call and they find out that the print matches the prints of Mr. Rothman, the art commissioner. So, or commissioner, I don't know, whatever. He's a commissioner. (laughs) Like Commissioner Gordon, but for art. So they go and arrest Mr. Rothman, and he's, like, about to get into a cab with his wife and kids to go see a show or something. And he's like, don't do this here. And they're super polite about it and, like, don't cuff him. And they're like, sure, sure, sure. Just go tell your wife that you're, like, answering some questions and, you know, we don't we don't have to make a scene about it. And you know only, like, a super rich white man would get that treatment. Like, you can't, like, the whole, oh, yeah, you're a suspect in a murder. You know, oh, we won't make a scene. Like, we, yeah. won't, we won't hassle you. It's such a clear, like, when you put that into comparison with the... Uh, episode where they literally like barged into black men's apartments and shoved them against walls for no fucking reason or like how did they yeah how was uh, it was anyway. only a couple episodes ago when they they go to talk to the man who i think his name was cookie and mm-hmm. they approach him at his car just on suspicion that he might be involved with something and they right. open his car door and pull him out and then search his car and it's like normal but with this guy right. he goes guys i'm i'm we're late for the theater yeah. And I'm surprised they didn't go, you know what? Have a good night go, go out. Go enjoy the show. Just, we'll catch up with you later. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll send a car for you to pick you up at intermission. Yeah. So that's the end of the, the law side. And now we get to the order side. And so Rothman is in court. And I'm assuming, like, there's a few moments where there's, like, court scenes that don't appear to be trials. But maybe they're sort of investigatory things or they're hearing if there's enough merit to bring a case forward kind of thing. Yeah, like uh, pre-trial type hearings. Yeah. And so Rothman pleads not guilty. And the DA's office is you know, saying we have to be really careful with this. I don't want a hint of double standard for the rich. But yet he moments before was talking about how he's this public figure who should behave better. Like, you know, the fact that he's a commissioner means he shouldn't be into S&M stuff. So there's some fun double standard shit. Anyway, so ADA Robinette is interviewing Rothman's secretary. And she says that sometimes he had hour long phone calls that would make him miss meetings and he'd come out of his office all pale and sweaty. And so they run his phone records and discover that these really long phone calls were to Elizabeth Hendrick. Well, what do you and know? So they, yeah. So they try to pressure Rothman to confess. They're like, we know you were there that night. We have your print on it. And we also know Elizabeth was involved. Like, 
give us the information and maybe we'll give you kind of lenient sentencing. But he's like, no, 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 no. So Stone gets a tap on Rothman's fire, fire line, <laughs> his phone line. And uh, then we kind of like cut to a scene with, uh, you know, all of the district attorney people, Stone, Robinette, and uh, Schiff. Yeah. Is Schiff the DA? And they're all listening to the latest phone call. And it's basically Hendrick just telling Rothman over and over, over like, shut up. And being really bossy and telling him what to do. So from this, they're kind of gleaning that she is a dominatrix. Although, yeah, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Around this time, we also learned that on the photograph where they got Rothman's print, there was also some oil on the photograph. What the oil is, we never really know. Although they, they're like, maybe it's lemon oil. So I don't was he like fucking polishing furniture <laughs> while he was over there? I do not understand. <laughs> but they also find that same oil on Victor Moore's body. So... They're like, okay, this substance was on his body as well as the photograph of that night. And so clearly he was, we, like, they could place him at the scene of this person's murder that night. And we also learned that Victor had quaaludes in his system. And so Stone basically says, like, you know, he couldn't, he might have consented to being tied up and beaten up or whatever, but he wasn't, he was, like, too drugged out to really know what was going on. And he clearly couldn't have consented to being killed. So Stone Try, uh, talks to Rothman's lawyer, Commissioner Rothman, and tells them that this was a guy who wanted to be hurt. He was a masochist. He committed suicide, and you can't prove he didn't. And Stone is basically offering him a minimum sentence for if he'll confess to manslaughter one, if he rolls on Hendrick. And the lawyer turns him down. Like he's, She's like, nope, we're out of here. But the client is like, wait, wait, wait. And then he tells the story that Hendrick wouldn't let him save Victor. She made him not help him. And so they go to search Hendrick's office. Like, this was enough for them to then go get a warrant to search Hendrick's office. And so they're searching her office and her home. And in her bathroom, they find, quote, black market lewds. Lewds. Black market lewds. It is the 1930s. (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, they also, they're like, officer or like detective, this chest over here is locked. And so they they make her get the key and she says, it's my hope chest. And Stone is there and he opens the chest and he pulls out a bunch of fetish gear and he goes, what were you hoping for? <laughs> As though he's super horrified. <laughs> so Kate McKinnon in her Cindy Lauper wig comes back for another appearance and they find out that they're... <laughs> There's a club where a lot of rich people who are into SNM go to party. And so we cut to that club and it's basically if somebody said, okay, make like a wild club scene that's sort of like satanic panic inspired go like this is what's happening. Like, you know, there's the lights and the sort of like deep growly thumpy music and people just doing weird things. Yeah. And they are talking to the owner of the club, trying to get him to give information on on Christina, not Christina Hendricks, that's the woman from Mad Men, Elizabeth <laughs> Hendricks, and Rothman and, and Victor. And he refuses, but they subpoena him, and so they get him into court. And he says that Hendricks was a member of his club, and says, quote, she likes to have slaves and watch things get a little out of control. Last month, she damn near killed a kid. Rothman says that Victor was, he's telling the story of that night, 
And he says that uh, Victor was standing on a chair with a rope around his neck, and he accidentally kicked the chair out from under him. Rothman says that he wanted to help Victor, but that Hendrix ordered him not to. So then they are able to get her on the stand, and Stone says, is like kind of thinking of the strategy, and he's like, she's going to try to dominate me, but I'll beat her at her own game. Ooh, it's a power play. (laughs) She's a dominatrix. You get it? (laughs) So stupid. So she says, you know, this whole evening was part of a performance piece of Victor's, and that's why she was there. And she said she left Rothman and Victor alone for a minute. And when she came back, Victor was dead. And then she basically kind of fucks herself over by saying that she should have never left them alone. And Stone kind of tries to trap her in that, saying like, oh, well, if you know you shouldn't have left him alone and it resulted in his death, then you knew, you know, bad things were going to be happening. So you're clearly responsible for this in some way. But she kind of talks her way out of it. Then there's kind of like a break in the trial and Stone and Robinette are out in the hallway talking and they happen to see Rothman on a bench and Hendrix comes over to him and starts like, gesturing wildly and kind of yelling at him. And so they're seeing her basically berate him. And when he comes in to the stand, he's like, sorry, I actually have been lying about everything. Hendrix wasn't there. Everything is my fault. I'm fully responsible. And Stone is like, did she order you to come back here and change your testimony? And Rothman is obviously lying, but he says Hendrix had nothing to do with it. Uh. Then we cut to Mr. Rothman's apartment. Or office. Office. And Grievy is there, and he's just on the phone, and he says, you better get over here. And then we cut to yet another scene where Hendrix is, like, at this party and, you know, kind of schmoozing with people, and Stone walks in and tells her that Rothman killed himself that afternoon because he couldn't face the jail time. And she looks shocked and then asks, did anyone take a picture? Which... Uh, I thought that was really unusual that they would even... Right, that very in. weird. Yes, like, and Stone is like, no, but Rothman left some, and they were Polaroids of her watching Victor die. So, based on that evidence, they tell her that she's under arrest, and that is the end of the episode. I'm like, kind of wondering if they were trying to make us think that not only was she into SNM, but she like had a thing for watching people die. I don't know. I feel like they were trying to insinuate something like that. Like she likes to see people close Almost to death to die. because yeah. they the guy at the bar or whatever said she likes to see things a little out of control so i feel like they were insinuating that she was into that kind of thing but they didn't really right flesh it out probably because they didn't no. know anything about it and they're like yeah uh this is season one we don't really know if there's even right they were like <laughs> let's just throw in a bunch of kinky stuff and say a lot of disparaging things about it and call it good exactly. and that's a wrap <laughs> and that's a wrap and you know what when you hear the court, uh, the real true crime, if you don't already know it, uh, I don't. They did a they did a pretty um, accurate job. Fuck. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, is it one that I would recognize? I don't know. I I had never heard of it, but it has like a a kitschy name to it. You know, oh, like great. the preppy killer, for instance. Like it oh, has yeah. a name like that, so it was evidently a big deal. But I I had never heard of it personally. But great job on the episode. It was a. Uh... <laughs> It was, I was a real special one. It was. It was like a whole new thing to be offensive about. A whole new world. <laughs> Don't you dare close your eyes. <laughs> I can't hear the words a whole new world without saying, Don't you dare close your eyes afterwards. All right. Well, on to the real case that inspired the show. 
Uh, are you ready? Okay. I mean, probably not, but <laughs> let's do it anyway. And you have no guesses, huh? Did they do any sort of change of people's gender in yes. any of this? They did. Yes. Okay. Um, I don't know. That still doesn't help me. Um, I'm just nope, curious. I got nothing. Who do you think is the gender change? I won't answer yet, but. I think probably the murderer was a man. Or like the person who, like the Christina Hendricks character. <laughs> Christina Hendricks. Oh my God, you're doing it Elizabeth again. Hendricks. They're both redheads uh, and they're both very true. attractive. So maybe, true. you know. You know, maybe that person was a man. Okay. Okay. Well, so this episode, Prisoner of Love, was inspired by the death mask murder. Mm, okay. I know. I had never heard of it. And the sources I used were, of course, Wikipedia, um, Law and Order Wiki, and a bunch of articles. There was an article. <laughs> what? Sorry. <laughs> I just love that you name the two least important sources, and then you're like, and then a bunch of actual articles. Well, you know why? Because they're just obvious. I didn't use Murderpedia this week because it wasn't on okay. there, surprisingly. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah. I, yeah. But there's, uh, yes, the articles I read were one from Black Book from 2016, and I... Okay. It was awful. It was an awful article, and it was uh-huh. very upsetting to me to read it. So I don't care about who wrote it. I didn't even write their name down. I just have to say it was written in 2016, and it was written with the same tone I would have expected from the 90s. This episode. Okay, great. Yeah. But the other articles were great. So there was one from the New York Times in 92, an uh, AP article from 85, which is when this took place, uh, one from UPI Did, in 88. You said 85? Yeah. Okay. Um, a UPI article from 88, and then some later articles that, you know, followed up. So there was a New York Post article ugh, in 2007, but it was helpful. An <laughs> uh, article from a New York magazine in 2012. And lastly, I use this for my own notes, but there was an article by Rachel Hope on Medium.com, and it's about dispelling the misconceptions and myths about the BDSM world in general. Uh-huh. Um, and I just wanted to include some quotes from her. Great. The crime... Uh, inspired a book that came out called Bag of Toys that was like widely sold in 1992 by David France. And the full title of it is very Lifetime movie-ish. It's called Bag of Toys, <laughs> Sex, Scandal, and the Death Mask Murder. That's very Lifetime movie. Yeah. Okay, so it is 1985, and 40-year-old Andrew Crispo is an infamous art dealer who owns and runs a pretty famed art gallery on um, West 57th Street in Manhattan. Is he infamous or famous? Both. Okay. Yeah. Why he, is he infamous? Well, we'll get there. Okay. <laughs> he was right. He is, his backstory, there's not too much about it, but he was raised in a Philadelphia orphanage. It says that he was born to a French woman who just had an affair, and as soon as she gave birth, she dropped him off. He had a pretty average adolescence. He was very self-made. You know, we know he came from nothing and he really wanted to make it in the art world, he decided. And so he started getting jobs as what they call a runner. What's the theme song that goes, you're gonna make it after oh, all. Mary Tyler Moore. Is that Charles in Charge? Mary Tyler Moore. Oh, that's Mary Tyler Moore. <laughs> Charles in Charge is new boy <clears throat> in the neighborhood. I could do the whole song. That's embarrassing. Okay. Um, <laughs> why? I don't know. There, you, I think you said the phrase, he's going to make it. He's going like, to make it. Yeah, he's, he's spinning around in the middle of the city and throwing his hat in the air. <laughs> and he 
he gets this job as a runner, and it's basically like a really low-level... Entry level? Yes, but you know when you work for like an actor and you get the coffee? You're a gopher. Yeah, like that. Okay, that's the word I'm looking for. So it's like I one think, of those. I think assistant is probably the more correct uh, phrase. I think sure. so, but I think it's... Oh, you mean in the acting world? I No, I just think like it's probably more respectful to call somebody an assistant than a gopher. I think so, but the, the articles <laughs> talking about his job don't sound very respectful. It sounds kind of like seedy. Like yeah, he was kind of okay. like taking art from people, selling it to someone else for like way more than he was supposed to. And he was like the go-between for these wealthy, oh, wealthy people. And was he like pocketing the difference? I think it was like he was, he was cut. They cut him oh, a, a okay. part of the difference, you know? So he had this okay. menial job. And while he was doing this, he used the opportunity to let his charisma show uh, to everyone <laughs> he was networking with. Even though I don't think you're this. allowed to do that in public. <laughs> um, I, you're not, but he is one in a million. What is his name again? Andrew? Andrew Crispo. Okay. And so he gets a job because he's noticed by some wealthy art dealer. And he gets a job, right? And he starts working for him in a more official capacity at his um, gallery. And so he becomes sort of like a procurer of sorts of getting art for the gallery. And he... Not much unlike the show, he uses this like wealthy benefactor sort of gentleman's name very loosely, and that's how he's able to sort of like shake people down. So he's like a professional name dropper. Exactly. And his okay. the guy knows that he does it. The guy who he works for knows that he's like using his name and threatening, not threatening, but ultimatum-y type. I don't know what the word is. <laughs> Ultimatuming? You know, like CD, he's, he's, he's nefarious, not nefarious. <laughs> I don't know what the word I'm looking for is. Shady. He's just a shady guy. He's using okay. this guy's name in inappropriate ways in order to get things from them. But the guy, the, his, his boss is basically like, you know, he's a convenient, he describes him as convenient. So he doesn't mind. That's my favorite act- adjective to have applied to me. Especially by your boss. Yeah. Convenient. <laughs> so he turns a blind eye, but this, this sort of like is what makes him infamous because he becomes known in the art world, but not for the best reasons. Right. Although okay. he is getting all this art. He even like won some sort of settlement for like $2 million at some point for wow. um, like against a, a reputable museum for the statue of some sort. There wasn't a lot of information on it. So his experience at this, at this gallery, I keep wanting to say dealership. <laughs> <laughs> his experience at this gallery allows him a lot of networking opportunities that give him the means and the connections to eventually open up his own eponymous gallery that we talked about at the beginning. Mm. And he's sort of positioned. Does he call it Crispo? <laughs> he calls it, it's like the Andrew, Andrew Crispo gallery or something like okay. that. And so it's sort of located in what one of the articles described as the aorta of the art the high-end art scene in New York that's City. the stupidest description. I know, that's why. <laughs> the aorta. Yeah, right in the aorta. I think that might have even been in the article I didn't like. Wow. So he is right in the center of everything, and that's why he's infamous also, because he he's very well known, and they listed a bunch of like people that he's shown there and like the sort of people that donated money to him. I don't recognize them. They all sound really fancy. I'm sure they're all very famous <laughs> in the art world. So that's who he is at this time in 1985. And also, in addition to this, he's known for being very into the BDSM scene privately. Crispo. Yes. Okay. But he is public about being into the scene, just not sort of the extent of it. So people know enough about him being into this sort of kink. Um, yeah. 
because he's been spotted at multiple bars that like cater to that community and there mm-hmm, have been several mm-hmm. accounts of master sub play at his actual gallery after hours now here's my question you know how you were saying like everybody thinks he's kind of shady whatever whatever do you think that he actually was or do you think that this is like people attributing that to him because they know he's in the snm community i think it's i think it's a little bit of both i think his okay. his shadiness is misconstrued. I think people are assuming they're ascribing some negative qualities to him because of him being involved in the BDSM community at all. Yeah. But I think that when we look deeper into who he is, he, he actually is a shady person as well. Okay. Great. Speaking of shady, I wrote down, you've heard of 50 shades of gray. This is 50 shades of Monet. (laughs) Goodbye. So, Crispo has this bodyguard sort of fellow. He's been described as a lot of things. I wrote down the list of job titles this guy has. Bodyguard seems like the most accurate. Accurate? Yeah. He's a 22-year-old guy who he became, who um, Crispo became friends with, named Bernard. I'm probably going to pronounce the last name wrong. It's L-E capital G-E-R-O-S. Ligeros? Ligeros? Well, it would be Le, right? Because it's a different... Mm-hmm. But it's one I word, it be, too. It's I not. think it's Legros. Legros? G-E-R-O. Okay, let's do that. That's, G- wait, that's... G-E-R-O-S? Yeah, Legeros? Legeros. Le- Le- okay. Or Legeros. Yeah. All right, I'm going to go with Legeros. That sounds easier. I'm asserting this as though I have any idea. I've never seen that fucking name before in my it's life. It's really funny because in our other podcast, <laughs> in our other podcast, for those who haven't listened, it's oh, yeah. a uh, it's a storytelling podcast where we're going through this book series and uh, the Wheel of Time book series. I am reading for the first time and N has read them multiple times. And so it's a fantasy book series. Anyone familiar with the fantasy world knows that the names of people and towns and things are confusing. So I'm always asking and like, how do you say this name? How do you say this yeah. word? And I just did it here as though. <laughs> as though I would know. But I, I spoke with the exact confidence that I would as if I actually knew. Exactly. I knew you would. That's what it is. Yeah. So I'm going to go with your, your suggestion anyway. So okay, his great. friend slash bodyguard is 22-year-old Bernard Legaros. He's been described in multiple articles as a bodyguard, cohort assistant, lapdog, and henchman. So he wears many hats. You know what? Wouldn't it be nice to have somebody once refer to you as a henchman? Just once. Just once. I want to know what it feels like to be like Bebop and Rocksteady. Yes, exactly. (laughs) So he is a jack of all trades, master of none, seems like. And he was the son of what one article describes as a United Nations official. Wow. Okay. But the other article says he was a that his father was an Oslo tradesman. It's unclear, but it seems like his parents were prominent people. I think his father was like part of the United Nations, but not like on the United. You know, I don't really know how that the United Nations effing <laughs> works. It looks like he was part of some sort of charity thing associated with the United Nations. So his parents are prominent. That's all that really matters. It's sort of like this classic trope of he is. He seems to be like the son of theirs that had wasted potential, you know? Right, the the black sheep of the family. Yeah, they're wealthy elites, and he hasn't really amounted to very much. He has some, like, low-level crime stuff he's been accused of, but nothing, no convictions, really, probably because they're wealthy. And there's not a lot of info on him, um, other than the fact that he was wealthy and he had snobbish parents. 
Okay. So he had developed um, his own reputation for being sort of rougher on the edges, according to the people who hobnobbed in the art community. He wasn't the I usual mean, people suspect. People who would use the phrase hobnobbed would definitely <laughs> think of most people as rough around the edges. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that's sort of the vibe. He is all the time being seen hanging out with Crispo during this sort of time period. They're both been using cocaine a lot, like very publicly. And Can I tell you that I can't hear the name Crispo without thinking of like crispy fried chicken? Really? When I hear Crispo, I think of like a clown, like Crispo the clown. I feel oh, like that should be better. a thing. That's better. <laughs> but all of his, but all of his uh, pranks are all based on fried chicken. <laughs> or anything crispy. Chips. Yeah. <laughs> So Crispo had allegedly developed an addiction for cocaine several years, several years earlier, according to his friends and colleagues in the art scene. And I just think like, yeah, I think a lot of the stories we're hearing throughout this series have been like attributing people of being addicted to cocaine. And I think it's just, let's not forget, it's the 90s. It's the 80s. Everybody's actually. on cocaine. Everybody's on cocaine. And this is also like the art and ent- entertainment industry. They're especially on cocaine. I mean, really, though. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's not the most uncommon thing. So it's it's attributed no. to him in these articles to to show like he was, you know, a ne'er-do-well. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of the world he's in. So it's a quiet day in a peaceful town in New York's affluent Rockland County, a place where nothing bad ever happens. <laughs> <laughs> Two young men are out hiking in their safe rural neighborhood. When they come across a smokehouse. I'm sorry. Wait, wait, wait. Hold, 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 hold up. They were hiking in their neighborhood. Yeah, they're out in the in the woods. It's a very rural neighborhood. Then that's not a neighborhood. They're out in their rural neighborhood hiking. Nope. When they come across a smokehouse out in the in the open. What's a smokehouse? A like smokehouse. Like where you smoke meats? Is, exactly. You've seen okay. them. You've seen, if you see a picture of it, you'll see it. You'll immediately know what it is. Okay. They never dreamed the horror that they'd find. <laughs> In their own backyard, or should Are I you say, quoting this, or did you write your own lifetime movie intro? <laughs> yes, I, I wrote this. <laughs> Great. Or should I say, what they'd find in Bernard Lagaros's backyard? Oh wait, so this was his backyard. It the is. Smokehouse was in his backyard. Exactly. This was my attempt at like writing the opening to like a <laughs> Dateline episode. <laughs> Okay, so they're not hiking. They're no, they were. Just, they were hiking. So it's no. very confusing. It's very confusing. You can't, Some of the no, articles... You can't, hi- well, you can't be hiking in your backyard. That's not a thing. Some of these articles have described the two people who came upon this scene at the smokehouse as young boys, and they didn't describe like why they were like out and about. It just seemed like they were young boys adventuring. And this then Crispo so- and the other one. Crispo and Legaros. Or no, okay. no, no, this is just two random boys that come across oh. this smokehouse. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So two random boys are They're traversing hiking some kind the, of yes. area. It says and they come hiking, but I think Jeros's. it's weird, too, to be hiking and then come across this smokehouse. Yeah, because and it's, it's Legeros's smokehouse. Yes, it's on his okay. property. They do not just... I'm very confused by this as well, because I looked around and I'm like, how are these two boys just on his property? So I, it must be a very large estate with a lot of like open right. land and a very rural yeah. area. And Rockland County is affluent. Hang so. on, I want to say two things. One, so this property of Legeros's that they're on mm-hmm. is... Is his or his family's? Because it's, he's sort of the estranged from his family. Exactly. Right? It's oh, it says it's owned by his parents. However, okay. I would, I don't know if the parents actually live on the property. It's never specified. Number two, two young people coming across 
a building that is dedicated to like hanging meat mm-hmm. is like prime nightmare setting exactly and like i'm already i'm already kind of scared (laughs) yeah the the ones that are more descriptive say that it was two young men on a hike versus two young boys out and about i don't know why but they they come across this smokehouse and they decide to go in they doesn't say why they opened the door to the smokehouse if they thought something was happening or not but what they come across oh i wrote did have you ever seen my cousin Vinny? (laughs) Of course, yeah, wrote, we've talked about it on this podcast, that's right? Or, or wrote, our other podcast, anyway. <laughs> Two Utes. <laughs> Two Utes. Yeah. I wrote these. I didn't know if these were young or not, so I just wrote Two Utes, as my cousin Vinny likes to say. They come across it way more than they bargained for when they end up opening the smokehouse doors, and the police are called to the scene because they. Wait, are, wait, wait. Can I guess? Yeah. Okay, so there's hanging meat, possibly. And, doesn't say. And there's. A murder. How did you know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a really good at guessing. You are. Thanks. You are. They they open the door and it's um Macho Man Randy Snap- Savage and he's screaming, "Snap into a snap slim Jim!" Slim Jim. <laughs> he chew- He takes a snap into it and they're blown back. <laughs> yeah. No. So they open the door and they um immediately they call the police because they come across what appears to be the remains of a body. But it's hard to tell. So the police get to the scene and they discover the very badly burned and charred remains of what appears to be a human male. Oh. Yeah. And it's been there approximately for two weeks or so. And it's been picked at by animals and it's been clearly burned um, more than once. God. Yeah. Okay. Luckily, so like somebody killed this person who was trying to, to dispose of the evidence and was like, well, this fire didn't work. Let me try it again. That's what it seems. Yeah. That's Great. what it, it seems wow. to be. Okay. Luckily, one portion of the body was preserved and had enough to get DNA evidence off of it and identify the remains as belonging to 26-year-old Norwegian fashion student Egil Dog Vesti. I had to look up that pronunciation. That's probably not right. No, I looked it up. I looked it up because I wanted to get his name right. <laughs> I even wrote down the pronunciation. <laughs> so it's Agel Dog Vesti. And the okay. reason his face had any flesh on it at all, which was the only body part of his that had any flesh, was because his head was in a leather hooded kink mask, which oh, ended okay. up preserving it probably on accident um, throughout the burdens. Yeah. I tried really tirelessly to find more information about um, Agel, but it was really, really hard Um you know, I always want to try to, like, honor the victims as much as right, I can. Right. There's really, really, really little known about him other than the fact that he was reported missing by someone prior to his body being found at some point. And I only know that because I found the newspaper clipping of his, like, missing sort of flyer, mm-hmm. um, which was unrelated to the actual crime. And other than that, let's see. It just says that he was a young man who attended FIT and he did some modeling as well. And he was a regular at some of these gay bars that these two other gentlemen had been seen at. And Chris Bowen, Legolas, or yes, whatever his name is. Exactly, exactly. And considering that when they were trying to identify the body, it says that they had to send over footage to his family, his sister overseas, to identify him. Oh. Yeah. So I would guess there just isn't a lot about him because of geographical reasons. He doesn't seem to have had a lot of American connections. So at least none that were willing to speak for him, unfortunately. So some of the articles don't even mention his name. Some of them just say the victim. Um, Wow. Okay. Some of them describe him as a Norwegian fashion student. 
And most of them that describe that do have his name, they only say his name once, which is really sad. How do you spell dog? D-A-A-G? No, uh, it is D-A-G. D-A-G, okay. I read an article uh, that says that Bernard had been calling in anonymous tips to the police on himself, but there's nothing to corroborate that besides one article, so I'm not really sure if that's true. Wait, sorry, Bernard is the first name of Legolas? Yeah. Okay, okay. So there's reports that he was allegedly calling the police on himself? That's one report, saying that he had been anonymously giving tips to the police about the, like, crime in general. Um, Uh But... Again, there's only one article, and the cops eventually charge him regardless. They have DNA evidence on the body, and it's on his parents' property. So, you know, we don't really need your little breathy phone calls. doesn't matter. (laughs) So (laughs) early on in custody, he implicates Andrew Crispo as an accomplice or, you know, being involved. Yeah. Yeah. And he is subsequently charged with um, his own list of crimes, which we'll go into the next week he's brought in. So... Uh, Both men have very different accounts of what happened. Uh, Andrew Crispo's account is is not documented very well because he did not testify at any trial associated with anything. He just like took the fifth? Yeah, he he took the fifth and he didn't want to implicate himself. So his account is at the very least, I'm, I'm unsure whether he even admits to any of it, or just says he's not involved in the crime part, but I can only say what I am what I'm presuming he copped to. Okay, Lego. Uh, how do I Lego Legolas. Legolas. I'm just gonna call him Legolas because honestly, he's he's not the best sweetheart in the world. So okay, so Legolas is. <laughs> No, I'm like literally picturing Legolas. I can't do this. I'm going to call him Bernard. What's that actor's name? Owen. Owen? Is he an Owen? No, he's, um, oh my gosh. Oh God, I'm seeing him in my head. He was in Pirates of the Caribbean too. This is really bothering me and I don't don't want to look it up. Oh, Orlando Bloom. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It wasn't O. Yes. Okay, thank you. I feel vindicated. I feel better. Oh God. Now, Now I can continue. I just had to picture him out of Legolas. the setting of Legolas to be like, who is this person? Yeah, yeah. Well, okay, so Bernard. Let's go with Bernard. This is the second Bernard killer we've it had is. in just 10 episodes. Yeah. Not naming anyone I know, Bernard. Not na- anyone I know. Like, I name people I, I think know. I the only Bernard I know, <laughs> as though I've met this person, is the character in Westworld. Oh, I know. Actually, I know Bernard, and he's very nice. Wasn't Bernard, like, the big dog character, the cartoon comic dog? Clifford. Be- Beethoven? Beethoven! That's what I'm thinking. I mean, Beethoven's not you. a cartoon, but he is a dog. Okay. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> All the names that he is that he isn't. So yeah. Bernard is loose-lipped than Crispo. He has a lot more to and say. And we know what loose lips do. They, what those, <laughs> never mind, stop. What those so... lips do. What those loose lips do. <laughs> I know, right? So he, he has his own account of what happened, and he implicates... Crispo in the whole thing. So I'm going to give you his account because that's all we have to go off of. The night of February 23rd, 1985, it starts out with Crispo and Bernard at a a bar called The Limelight. And it doesn't say whether it's like a kink bar or not. It's sort of insinuated, but it's uh, a gay bar. And they're sort of there to allegedly have a confrontation with the manager there of evidently Mm. the manager had offended them in some way on a previous evening and they want to fight him. And Crispo allegedly wants to 
like take him outside and like really like screw him up basically. Have you ever seen a bar fight? Yes. Okay. Ugh. Same. So it's kind of, much anxiety. It a lot of anxiety, and you just feel really embarrassed for people too. You really, it really is a really. No one looks good in a bar fight. Nobody. Looks no good one in a looks bar like fight. the the one who's in the right. No. So this was in one of the recent articles that they wanted to fight the manager. The earlier articles, I didn't see anything about it, but. Basically, the man wouldn't take the bait. He wouldn't go outside with them. He wasn't having it. He was there, but he was like, uh, I'm working here. I'm working here. I'm working here. <laughs> so they were like, all right, you know, this isn't going to happen. We're not going to, you know, do anything significantly damaging to him on his property. And he's not coming outside. So they look for another target, unfortunately. I'm sorry. They're, oh, okay, wait. So they're mad at somebody and they want to beat him up, but they can't beat up that person. So they look for somebody else to beat up. That is what this man is alleging. Okay, okay. Yeah. And right, okay, and all of this is only his testimony, so it, there, there's a lot of probably other perspectives that we're not getting. Correct. Okay. Correct. So they find Vesti at the bar. They meet him there for the first time. Neither of them, ha- they, they'd seen him around, but they hadn't ever spoken to him before. He is... This is the Norwegian yeah, model. Yeah. Okay. And he's very... I've seen a f- couple pictures of him. He's very, very, very handsome. It doesn't surprise me. I was just going to say, me. is he really handsome? He's really, really good looking. It doesn't Tell surprise me, me he's a model name. at all. Uh, V-E-S-T-I is his last name. His first name is spelled E-I-G-I-L. Very handsome guy. Uh, I only found like two or three pictures of him. Oh, yeah. He's very handsome. Yeah. I mean, they said he's a model, so it doesn't... It didn't surprise me. They become interested in him. It doesn't say whether they're interested in him immediately for sexual reasons or whether they're interested in him because they are just looking to get their aggression out on somebody else. But for whatever reason, Bernard approaches him and they, you know, strike up some sort of agreement that they're going to, like, go home together. So he says that— With with Eigeldog. Uh, yeah, Eigeldog okay. and—or Eigeldog and—I'm going to stick with Vesti. Crispo. <laughs> not, not Crispo. Crispo's not, Crispo's not involved yet. Crispo is sort of okay. Okay, he's there, oh, but okay. Legaros approaches this guy, and it seems like um, that was the thing. Like Legaros was like the wingman because he okay. he was also he was attractive and he was younger. Okay. He was like twenty four, whereas uh-huh. Crispo, Crispo is like forty or forty one. Okay, and so it looks like Legaros was sort of like the wingman. So he says that he and Vesti became involved in some sort of a conversation that led to. Him saying he had a lot of coke and would Vesti like to join him and, you know, get out of here. And he says yes. So Bernard states that Crispo's influence on him was, quote unquote, Svengali-like. Mm. And that his de- in, in court, the defense for Legaros says that he, quote, fed him, that Crispo, quote, fed him drugs on a regular basis and that altered his state of mind. And he is pleading not guilty uh, on the basis of insanity. That's his defense. Okay. His defense okay. is that he was being controlled by Crispo. And he says that the night began with a lot of erotic play and cocaine use at the gallery. And mm-hmm. it continued later on back at the estate at his house or his family's house where things got increasingly out of hand. And Vesti was led to the smokehouse completely naked, just in the mask and a dog collar on a chain. And that when he got there, Crispo was pressuring Legaros to kill him. And according to Legaros, that Crisp he says that Crispo first stabbed Vesti. Not very clear on 
where or how many times, but stabbed him first and then ordered Legros to shoot him twice in the head. God. Yeah. And so that's what he did. He said that Crispo had been attacking him with the knife and he felt compelled by Crispo to do what he said. (laughs) The power of Crispo compels you. (laughs) Yeah. The power of Crispo has compelled him to execution style kill somebody. Like that's not... (laughs) That's not how oh, it works. I don't, no. I don't, you know, I don't know. Damn. So he, the body is so badly damaged, badly burned, that the only wounds that they can tell are the bullet wounds. So yeah. the stabbing corrobor- is not corroborated by anything. Yeah. So that's just what he oh, says. Oh, right. Okay, okay, okay. You know, so Crispo, of course, says that he was not involved in the murder whatsoever. Uh, it's unclear. I he didn't say anything. Yeah, it's unclear about whether Crispo's defense says anything about him being at the bar with him or being there with him. I imagine that he has to cop to some of it because uh, in Legros's testimony, he says they went back to the gallery, and I would imagine they would have checked that. You know what I yeah. mean? But yeah. it's unclear. Either way, uh, Crispo says, nah, n- nah, that's not what happened. I, I, I don't know anything about this. This he's, not, he's crazy, and I don't know. That's basically their defense. Not, didn't see anything, Great. didn't do anything. Wasn't even there. So the uh, other thing that he says during testimony is that he admits that he was the one that shot the weapon, but it was compelled to, as I said, that he was the one who went back and burned the body several times trying to destroy the evidence. And he says that, quote, he was a henchman of a sadomasochistic homosexual art gallery owner named Andrew Crispo, who enjoyed throwing cocaine-fueled parties in which unlucky victims were held captive and physically, sexually, and psychologically tortured, end quote. God, so he, so Legolas is saying that this is a recurring pattern. Yes, and that this is wow, okay. just got out of control this time. Normally, okay. they just torture somebody, <laughs> and then this time it led to, to it escalated. Wow. Um, yeah, exactly. So the rifle that's believed to be the murder weapon was indeed found at Crispo's estate also. So there's that. The public nature of this trial led to a 29-year-old man who wished to remain anonymous, and he has been. Um, he came forward and says that something similar happened to him with Crispo and Legaros previously. And mm. so he comes forward, and there is a trial that takes place several years later for him as well. In the case of Vesti, however... Crispo walks with no charges brought against him whatsoever. How? Nothing. The Not murder a weapon single... was at his house. Mm-hmm. I think they couldn't uh, say if it was definitively the murder weapon because I imagine oh. something about the evidence was destroyed, but it's the same okay. type of weapon for sure. They just, I think, couldn't, nothing conclusively said that it was the murder weapon. It just said that it was, it matched the murder weapon's description and it's believed to be. So, uh, so I'm sorry. So they have somebody who is placing him at the scene mm-hmm. of the murder that night, and they find a gun matching the wounds of the murder victim. Mm-hmm. And they know, house. and they know that this man does indeed work for Crispo as well. Like his, this, right. the person that is suspected is directly linked to this person who is also directly linked to the BDSM scene. And we know this person was killed wearing a mask. Yeah. In a hood. Yeah. Okay. But he walks with no charges whatsoever. And uh, however, Legaros is found guilty of second degree murder, and he wow. is sentenced to twenty five to life. Now, the trial for the other gentleman who was a teacher, he is the other victim. Yes, he's able to okay. remain anonymous because he's considered a victim of sexual assault, and so he's been able to keep his identity 
even to this day, um, anonymous, which is great for him. Thank God. Yeah. Because it was a less publicized trial, but the trial for this man who his occupation was a teacher. So I, I refer to him as the teacher. The teacher had promised to supposedly this is during this trial against Crispo and Legaros. Legaros again testifies against Crispo and Crispo again says nothing. Wow. Okay. And so he says, this is Legros's um, account of what happened, which matches much of the teacher's corroboration. So he says mm-hmm. that uh, the whole thing started because Crispo had, what's the word I'm looking for, approached the teacher previously at some point, undisclosed, mm-hmm. and the teacher had promised to supply a victim for a snuff film for Crispo. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that Crispo was going to film this general, this person, this victim, and then he was actually going to kill him in the snuff film also. The teacher didn't pay up. He got scared or didn't realize it was as serious. And as punishment, he was kidnapped in essence, abducted, and yeah. he was whipped by three young men uh, that Crispo had ordered to do so as punishment. By the way, you can't see my face right now, but I'm making the infamous Chrissy Teigen face. (laughs) I felt it. I felt it through the the, uh, speaker. So Crispo's attorney argues that the man was simply a willing participant in a regular night of S&M. And that's all Mm -hmm. it was. And that all of this precursor stuff is nonsense. It's unclear whether the teacher says he was doing anything with the snuff film. That's Legros' testimony. So Crispo, again, charged with nothing. Legros pled guilty to second degree attempted kidnapping, and he got four years added to his already um, happening sentence. This was a trial in 1988. He was already in prison. Okay. Um, Fun fact. Well, not fun fact. Not the fun fact yet. The charges overall, I don't know which were for which case, but the charges that were brought against all of them that they could have been found guilty for were kidnapping, sodomy, assault, coercion on... Or coercion and unlawful imprisonment. So mm. that's what they were up for, but that's what they got. Or that's what he got, I guess. Crispo got nothing. Um, fun fact, Crispo ended up <laughs> being charged with tax evasion, and huh. he was found guilty for avoiding paying $4 million in, God, those taxes, they will always get you. They always get you. And he served three years of a five-year sentence for that. Oh, okay. Well, I guess that wasn't very much for a murder. <laughs> Not great, but, you no. know, he served something. This was in between the two trials, by the way. So he was serving the amended sentence of three years while he was uh, being mm-hmm. brought to that second trial. Okay. Okay. So while he was in jail, his oh, this is another crazy thing. So while Crispo was in jail for those three years, his estate actually suffered a massive explosion. <gasps> yeah. And Wait. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And okay. it destroyed much of his assets, including a lot of his art collection. Okay. So a lot of people felt like that was like divine intervention. I was, say, was there any indication that that was like an act of arson or whatever? No. Uh, okay. But in 1991, which was a few years after this, the utility company for his area had to settle a case. He put a case against them and they settled for $8 million. No. Yep. So he. Gets eight million dollars for his uh, his estate burning down. Okay. Yep. Um, he. I think that's really the last we hear of Crispo. Believe it or not. Um, <laughs> okay. There is. So the last thing we hear about the person who, by the one account we have, masterminded all of this, mm-hmm. 
is that he spent a total of three years in prison, but walks away with $8 million. Yes. And he is laying low these days. We have, we don't know where he's at, but he's living, wow. he's living his life in as far as Legros, Legros, <laughs> as far mm-hmm. as Bernard in a 2007 article, I read Bernard married a woman named Jeannie or Jean Bissonnette uh, while he's in jail, while he's incarcerated. Mm-hmm. And she had met him because she wrote him a letter after reading Bag of Toys, that uh, book. Oh, right, right, right. And she read it in 2000, and she wrote him a letter, flew to New York to visit him in jail, and proposed within two hours of meeting him. Not a great choice. Not a great choice. And actually, in the article I read about it, he he's quoted as telling, warning her before marrying him, like, think about this. <laughs> Uh, she gets married anyway, and in 2001, they are married at the at the jail, and she said, she's quoted as saying, oh, she says that they would, quote, one day bond on the molecular level by having a baby, end quote. That is revolting. Mm-hmm. Like, no, that sentence is revolting. Amen. The marriage <laughs> is instantly tense, as soon as it's official, and she over the years, has said that uh, she's distrustful of his wealthy parents. She accuses his brother of shooting her cat with a bow and arrow. Uh-huh. uh-huh. And she alleges that Bernard, while in jail, was sleeping with other inmates' wives. Okay. Okay. Very great. I'm glad she got married to him, and seems like she's really happy. And in 2007, in January, she gives birth to their child, which, who was conceived on a conjugal visit, and immediately files for divorce. And seeks full custody of the child. Okay. Yeah. So that's why this- Is she doing this all for the money? He says, uh, so he is seeking to have the child get full custody with his parents. And she's seeking full custody herself. And he says that she's doing it for financial gain. He said, she says he's doing it as a attempt to get some sort of clemency in the future by having a child in his parents' care. And that's okay. all there is on it. I could have gone into more articles to find out what happened. I don't care, so I didn't. Yeah. But that's that's kind of like what his trajectory was afterwards. So they both, yeah. you know, I would argue that kid has, uh, he's going to be climbing uphill w- with either uh, set. Honestly, you know? with both parents. Right. This was considered the murder of the decade until one year later when Jennifer Levin's body is found in the preppy murder case. Oh, wow. So that kind of just overshadowed everything. Exactly. When... It was like all everyone was talking about. And then one year later, Jennifer Levin's body is found in the park and it changes to the preppy murder. And at the time, the newspapers all sort of focused on the gay scene and Mm -hmm. seedy nightlife and the underground world of kink in NYC. The headlines that are coming out are... Things like, quote, S&M murder trial, uh, something creepy about the gallery. All of the news outlets are splashing photos of the actual death, quote unquote, death mask. Uh, so that's, where you, that's what you saw everywhere was this picture of the death mask on every magazine. It, 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 we've seen the picture now. I've seen the picture. You'll see it too, I'm sure, as soon as you search for anything regarding this. It's a simple leather hooded mask with eye holes and a zipper for a mouth. It even has like a nose hole in terms of like the world of kink and like toys and all of this type of thing. It's nothing you wouldn't see at like a Spencer's or like a Mm -hmm. costume shop. It's nothing like shocking when you look at it. Okay. 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 And there's a lot of focus on the fact that the suspects and all the victims are identified as queer in some way. And it's all, everything is like sort of linking this like seedy world and BDSM and homosexuality to quote unquote, a dangerous lifestyle. Kind of like you were saying happens in the show. 
there are multiple articles from both the 80s and now, as I mentioned, that say things like the victims were playing a dangerous game and yeah. they got more than they bargained for. <sighs> so t- to state the obvious, there is being queer and being an or mm-hmm. and or being an active member of the BDSM community. While they can certainly intersect, uh, there's no they're two different things entirely. And yes. so obviously neither of these communities have any actual link to any dangerous, violent, malevolent crimes, any of the sort of behavior. Yeah. So it's obviously a huge misconception and a lot of myths and things like this, I think are still pretty prevalent today. Um, Mm -hmm. Anytime anyone is a victim of any crime and anyone finds out that they had any sort of kink whatsoever, it is like the first thing people will try to go to is like a, who were you in the world? B, right. what do you look like and how are you different than than the average white American? And then C, right. what kind of secrets did you have? You know what I mean? It's just like always this like, it's disgusting. And it's way worse, I think, in the articles that were older. But like I said, I read an article from 2016 that was saying things like, oh, you know, it, it the reason I hated it so much was because it painted the kink scene and the bdsm world and clubs that people would go to to sort of like feel comfortable it paints Mm -hmm. it in like a very dark way even though it's like a new thing right that's why i looked up some articles just in general uh, about the bdsm community and sort of the myths and and things that are still prevalent today and i would say just in in general i would argue personally that those who are into sort of like BDSM or master and sub sort of play. It's, I think they're generally in, individuals who, ex, what's the word I'm looking for? They would probably have more control physically yeah, and restraint I, and respect and understand boundaries way more than the average person, even. Yes. There's you know? actually a, a book by a sociologist named uh, Peter Brent. I think it's Peter Brennan. I could be m- messing up his last name, but the book is called Fairies, Bears, and Leathermen. What's it called? And uh, fairies, bears, and leathermen. Okay, and so he he is basically doing a like comparative ethnography between like you've heard of like fairies, right? Like the yeah. fairy community, like okay, and then bears and leathermen, and so he's like studying these different gay communities, and he talks a lot about how in the leather community these folks have so much. Like they're so much more aware and respectful of uh like power and like pain and all of that stuff than average people because it's like knowing how to you know engage in these s and m things while respecting people's like autonomy and agency as people requires a lot of like care and awareness and respect and mm-hmm. So it's 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 kind of like ironic that people are like, oh, they just didn't know their limits because the people who are part of this community, like that's what they're continually focused on is is being respectful of people's limits and boundaries. Exactly. And then just to add to that, the article I was talking about earlier, I'll say her name again. Let me see. Scroll up. Uh, it's by Rachel Hope and it's on medium.com. Uh, It's really, really great. And she says, I have some quotes from her. And it's, I think the article title was like 12 misconceptions about the BDSM community. But if you search her name, you'll find it. And she says, um, she's in the article fighting to dispel like all the myths surrounding the community that she is a part of. And she writes, quote, uh, a few different things. She writes, quote, domination is not about disrespect. 
Uh, a preference for BDSM doesn't make someone promiscuous, slutty, easy, or even mean that they have a high libido. And she outlines that while many people in the BDSM community do participate in in the um, the kink for sexual reasons, many do it yeah. with their friends for completely non-sexual reasons. Yeah. And so, you know, it's not, it's a way bigger community than just what people envision. And yes. she also says that many people would assume that the dom is in charge in these sort of like sub dom communi- <sighs> communications. And she says, quote, in reality, it's the submissive who's in charge. The dom cannot dominate without the sub having agreed to submit. And the submissive party submits under their own conditions only. That is exactly okay. So I had to Google his name because I was sure I was getting it wrong. The Fairies, Bears, and Leatherman book that I was talking about. His name is Peter Hennen with an H. Mm. And that's like one of the big things he talks about is that the assumption is that the this Dom is sort of like fully in control and gets to call all the shots. And in in reality, it's really about understanding and communication between anybody engaged in these acts consenting and and you know anyway yeah consent is like a big part of what she writes about she has this whole section where she writes about in the article about um the idea of consent and she says that you know she in her opinion she blames the reason people have this misconception about consent in the bdsm community she blames it mostly on porn um and she says quote i guess it's not very popular to show people sitting around and negotiating about rough sex recent bodily (laughs) injuries and restraints or triggers but in real life that's what happens well and see that's the thing that's why it's i think it's so bad that we shame people for like watching porn or whatever because what that does is you don't people don't have an awareness that you know in this like production of porn or whatever people have had all of those conversations right like that's all happening off camera and so we don't see it happening but the fact that like it's so shameful to talk about sexuality and pornography and kink and all of the things like that actually makes it like allows people to have misconceptions and allows people to have prejudice and allows people to be ashamed or or shame other people because we're not we don't really have a lot of media literacy around these things because all we see are these sort of shocking moments that make for good TV. We don't see those boring moments of like the conversation and the, you know, all of that sort of stuff. I can understand why it's not in porn for the same reason. Like when we watch movies, we don't see people taking bathroom breaks and, you know, right, having yes. lunch. You know, it's not compelling for the narrative, but it's important right. to be aware be of aware that it's of- happening. Yeah. Well, thank you all so much for listening. Again, if you could take a minute to subscribe and review us on whatever platform you're listening to, that would be awesome. And you can email us at rippedheadlinespod at gmail.com or follow us on social media, Twitter and Instagram at Ripped Headlines. And we also have a Facebook page, so you can go find us there if you want. Yes, please reach out to us. We love engaging with you guys. Nothing is more exciting to me personally than when we get an email or a message from someone and it's like a real person. Yes. (laughs) So I love that. So thank you guys for all the feedback so far. And uh, yeah, we'll We'll see see you next week. week. Bye. Bye.